My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Welcome to the final episode of Season 3 of the 21st Century Creative. As usual, the season feels like it's gone by very quickly. And at the same time, I feel like we've come a long way since Stephen Pressfield got us started on the artist journey all the way back in December. Thank you for all your feedback and encouragement over the past few weeks. It's always great to hear that you're enjoying the show and finding it helpful. And might I ask you if you have found the show helpful and you want to help it succeed and reach more creatives like you, could you please take a moment to either leave a review on iTunes or to share it with at least one other person who would also find it helpful? I'm doing my best here to make this the best show I can for you, and I can't succeed on my own. So anything at all you can do to help will be very much appreciated. Thank you also to the 21st Century Creative team, to Javier Whaler and his team at Breaking Waves for the music and sound production, to Irene Hoffman for designing the show's identity, and the book 21 Insights for 21st Century Creatives. Also to Alexandra Amor for editing the interview transcripts. Some of you have been asking if there will be a season four, and I'm pleased to say yes indeed to that. I've already recorded some great interviews for Season 4, so that will be coming to you a little bit later in 2019. In the meanwhile, if you haven't yet picked up your free copy of the companion book, 21 Insights for 21st Century Creatives, then go to 21stcenturycreative.fm slash 21insights and download it right now. It's a short and hopefully pithy collection of insights to help you thrive as a creative in this crazy century. And as with the podcast, a brief review on Amazon would really help me reach more creatives like you with the book. So this season of the podcast has finished, but remember, we now have a whopping three seasons worth of archives for you to explore. So if you haven't yet listened to all of the episodes, go back and dive in at 21stcenturycreative.fm. My coaching practice will, of course, remain open, so if you are an experienced creative, by which I mean you've got at least five years or so experience on your creative path, and you want to step things up big time, and you're curious about what I could do to help, then go to 21stcenturycreative.fm slash coaching to learn more about my work as a coach and to contact me about an initial conversation. Okay, we are not done yet with season three. I have a very special interview to close the season. About 10 years ago, I got an email from CJ Lyons, who I'd come into contact with via my blog. And in that email, CJ told me that sales of her thrillers were really taking off. 
She was selling hundreds of thousands of books via Kindle Direct Publishing. And CJ kept going until her sales were well into the millions. And we've stayed in touch over the years. So I reached out and asked CJ if she would like to come on the show and share what she's learned from such phenomenal success. I'm very pleased that she said yes. And that means I get to share her story with you today as she reflects on the last decade, how she got started and what's kept her going as a writer. Before we get to the interview, I'd like to take a few moments to suggest to you that one of the biggest bugbears in your creative life has the potential to become one of your most powerful resources. Just about every creative I've ever coached has had a very sharp and active inner critic. And you know what? That's a good thing. If you find yourself resisting this idea, maybe because you know what it's like to suffer with an overactive inner critic, then pause for a moment and consider all the mediocre work you've ever encountered in your field. You know, the half-baked stuff that looks like it was put together in five minutes. The stuff devoid of taste, originality, authenticity, and or basic craft skills. Because this is the kind of work produced by people with an underdeveloped inner critic, or even no inner critic at all. You see, your inner critic is your own critical faculty, which is essential to producing great work. It's the part of you that can appraise a piece of work and tell you what works and what doesn't, and why. The part of you that knows you can do better and can point you in the direction of how. And yes, it has a downside. Left to its own devices, the inner critic can run amok, giving you a constant negative critical commentary, not just on your work, but on you as a person. You're not a real artist, it tells you. You'll never amount to anything. What makes you think you can achieve anything worthwhile when you churn out crap like this every day? Ad nauseum. The inner critic can be hard to live with, yet a finely honed critical faculty is one of the things that separates a successful professional from the legions of amateurs. So how can you get the benefits of the critic without the downside. Think of a highly trained sushi chef. One of his prized possessions is a razor-sharp knife. And yes, it usually is a he when it comes to sushi chefs. The sharpness of the knife is essential for the delicacy and precision of his work, so the knife needs handling with care and attention. But what does the chef do at the end of the day? He puts it away, safely out of reach, where it won't injure anyone. Then he leaves work and spends time with his friends and family, enjoying the fruits of his labours. Next morning, he comes back refreshed and sharp for a new day's work, just like his knife. 
What he doesn't do is stick the knife in the back pocket of his jeans or sling it in his rucksack or twirl it casually in his hands as he saunters home from work or use it to point or gesture while he's having a beer with friends or dinner with his family. Because he knows what damage the knife can do, so he leaves it behind with his work. Treat your critical faculty like that sushi knife. Keep it sharp and finely honed by keeping up with the latest work in your field, as well as learning from the old masters. By engaging your peers in discussion about the merits of the work you discover. By reading critiques and reviews of other creators' work and thinking critically about what you read. By getting expert feedback on your own work. By learning to assess your work with a coolly objective eye, not an overcritical one. By writing articles or giving talks about your creative heroes, articulating just why you think their work is great. The more you consciously exercise your critical faculty, the more you take ownership of it and the less likely it is to manifest as a low-grade, nagging voice at the back of your mind. Be particularly watchful for the fatal shift from critiquing a piece of work to criticising yourself. Whether or not you're a real artist or a deluded amateur isn't for you to decide. What is up to you, every day, is to get better at appraising your work and making it better. And at the end of each day, put your knife away. Let go of the urge to critique and don't take it so seriously. Give yourself the benefit of the doubt until tomorrow morning, when you can start afresh. If you're a creative professional, you've probably noticed by now that rejection and criticism are a fact of life for you. If you're an artist of any kind, your work will be rejected by editors, curators and other gatekeepers. And each time you put it in front of the public, you expose yourself to criticism. If you're a performer, you may have had to deal with the criticism live and in person, face to face. Just to get on the stage or in front of the camera, you're going to have to go through a lot of rejection. If you're an entrepreneur, you face rejection by customers, partners and investors. Those same people won't hesitate to criticise you if they're unhappy. At some point, you've probably had a well-meaning friend or family member tell you not to take it so personally. And whoever said that, bless them, is almost certainly not a creative themselves. Because any creator will confirm it's almost impossible not to take it personally, at least at first. You put your heart and soul into your work, so it feels like your heart and soul are the very things being rejected and criticised. To help you deal with these challenges, I've written a book, Resilience, Facing Down Rejection and Criticism, on the road to success. It starts by explaining why it's normal to take rejection and criticism personally and what you can do about it. 
It's full of practical tips from the many years I've spent coaching creatives like you dealing with rejection and criticism in their careers. And there are lots of real-life examples from my own experience as a writer and creative entrepreneur, and also from famous creators, past and present. If you'd like to be more resilient and creative in the face of rejection and criticism, go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash resilience and pick up your copy of Resilience today. C.J. Lyons is a New York Times and USA Today best-selling thriller author who has sold more than two and a half million books. She's won numerous awards, including the International Thriller Writers' prestigious Thriller Award and the Daphne du Maurier Award for Excellence in Mystery and Suspense. Once upon a time, C.J. was a paediatric ER doctor. For those of us outside the US, ER stands for emergency room, so CJ was helping children and their families facing medical emergencies. She's also assisted police and prosecutors with cases involving child abuse, rape and murder. As she says in the interview, working as a doctor meant she saw people at their very best and their very worst. This experience has clearly been a big influence on her fiction. And in our conversation, she has some compelling things to say about the value of art and storytelling in the face of the darker side of life and death. I first met CJ about 10 years ago, when her career as a writer was starting to take off. And since then, it's been amazing to see her success, and inspiring to see how she's handled it with good humour and generosity inspiring others through her writing and speaking. I asked her to come on the show and share some of the learnings from her extraordinary journey, and she kindly made the time to give me an extraordinary interview. If you're in the early phases of your career, as a writer or another kind of creative, you'll find CJ's story inspiring and instructive, especially in relation to dealing with adversity and setbacks. It's sobering, Maybe also reassuring to hear that a big-name writer didn't have things all her own way and that she had to fight to get where she is. If you're a more experienced writer or creative, then you'll be particularly interested to hear CJ reflect on the ups and downs of a successful career and how to stay true to your inspiration over the long term, regardless of external circumstances. CJ, when did you first realize you wanted to be a writer? (laughs) That's the question everyone asks. And like so many people, I actually started out as a storyteller very young. In fact, my earliest memory is of doing puppet shows with my mother's hair curlers (laughs) and telling stories. And I went to a Catholic school and the nuns were always very distressed. And I was in timeout quite a lot because to their mind, I had difficulty discerning the difference between a lie 
and telling the truth. And really it was like, well, no, I know what the truth is. I just think it's much more interesting if we go in a different direction Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I would tell stories. So very young, um, I wrote my first novel, uh, which was a young adult fantasy, total ripoff on Terry Brooks and the Sword of Shannara, mm-hmm. um, when I was uh, 14 and 15. And, mm-hmm. um, but I, even before then, I, I always wrote short stories and poems, and I had um, uh, won awards for my uh, writing in elementary and junior high. So I, I just always knew that was part of me. I just never dreamed of turning it into a career until I was much older. Right, because your first career was as a doctor, right? Yes, I was a pediatric emergency medicine physician, uh, and I was a doctor for 17 years before I took a leap of faith to write full-time. I mean, how did you get from writing to doctoring? Was it it just a completely different part of you took over, or was there a, a link in your mind? Well, as I said, I was always a writer. And writing is really my way of, um, as an extreme introvert, of coping with the chaos of the world around me. And mm-hmm. so I even wrote two uh, novels while I was in medical school, despite, you know, attending class and being on the wards and, you know, working 100-hour work weeks, because I needed to, <laughs> to process Sorry, CJ. I'm just thinking of all the clients who've told me they don't have time to write. And you wrote two novels while you were doing medical school? (laughs) That's an excuse that I refuse to accept from anyone. Because, I mean, look look at so many romance writers who are managing households and working outside jobs and still writing brilliant books. Um, Look at, well, as a physician, uh, there's such a huge tradition of physician writers. Um, In fact, a lot of physicians who know that I left medicine are like, well, why did you leave medicine? Uh, You could just do both. And I just don't have the temperament where I could handle giving 120% to my patients and 120% to my writing. Because at that point, I had two contracts with a New York City publisher. So I felt obligated to, you know, give them the best I could. So leaving, uh, it was a huge decision for me. It was very difficult, but it was the right decision in the end. But it was a, it was a leap of faith. I saved up my money. I prepared myself to, you know, really lower um, my cost of living. And uh, I just wanted to give the writing at least a year or two a chance to see, you know, could I really turn this into a full-time career? And if not, uh, I, of course, still maintained all my medical credentials so that I could have gone back uh, if I chose to. But uh, things turned out in a very different direction. When I was a student, I went to see the, the novelist Leon Garfield give a talk at the Literary Society. And I asked him if he had any advice for somebody considering a career as a writer. And without hesitating, he said, yeah, do something else first. He said, because otherwise you won't have anything to write about. Yes. I, oh, I totally, I totally agree. You need life experience. Um, I mean, even being a writer all my life, when I look back on the early works, um, the problem with my writing was it was pure imagination because I didn't have enough experience with relationships and people. Um, it's not so much that you need to experience like, with, I don't know, rocket ships. If you're a science fiction author, you just need to know how to research those. But you need to understand people because your audience is people. And if you can't interact with them and make that deep 
personal, heartfelt, emotionally honest connection, they're they're not going to be reading your works and and feeling that um, Stephen King calls it um, telepathy. You know, feeling mm-hmm. that they are immersed in the story and are actually part of that story world. And I think the only way you can get that is through experience. Um, I would tell people, honestly, the best experience I ever had was one of my jobs when I was in college and early on in medical school was as a waitress. I learned everything I needed to know about emergency medicine and writing, just right there being a waitress <laughs> on the floor. You learned how to triage or prioritize and, and customer service and how to be kind to people that were having a bad day, but also how not to take shit from people that were trying to abuse you. Oh, excuse me. Right, <laughs> I hope this isn't a rated G podcast. Oh, no. Yeah, you, you just turned us the explicit tag for this week. So thank oh, okay. You. Sorry about that. <laughs> It's the ER doctor and me. I tend to be a bit blunt. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. So the rule is on the show, you can always swear as long as it's artistically justified. So. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so, okay, so waitressing prepared you for being an ER doctor. I mean, you must have seen a lot of life in both of those jobs. Yes, yes. And I saw in the emergency room, you see people at their absolute worst point of their entire life but you also see them at the absolute best. And that's where I came up with this whole concept that has driven and is really the theme that runs through pretty much all of my work, um, which is that heroes are born every day. You don't have to be a Clark Kent or a Superman. You can actually be a hero just by finding the courage to stand up for, for the people that you love or for the beliefs that you love. And I got to see that in the ER all the time. Um, I, I also got to see the worst of humanity, unfortunately. Um, I was involved in cases of child homicide, um, sexual assaults, domestic violence. Uh, I even um, met a serial killer, uh, which not many thriller writers can say, quite honestly. Um, no. and, <laughs> but um, I, so I saw the best and the worst of people. And I think you need to open yourself up to those kind of life experiences in order to bring that emotional honesty to your writing, no matter what genre. And in fact, that's why I had to find a new term for my genre, because no one was writing these kind of books that had emotional honesty in addition to all the thriller tropes of, you know, explosions and car chases and the adrenaline rush. And that's where I came up with my personal subgenre of thrillers with heart. Say more about that subgenre, because I think it's a really interesting point, because a lot of thrillers take place in a universe where there aren't really any consequences emotionally. There's lots of explosions and fights and chases, and it's all very macho, but the hero dusts himself off, and it usually is a him, as if nothing's ever happened. So... What were you trying to do with this new twist on the genre? Well, um, for me, Thrillers with Heart uh, took things in a different direction, and that's why I became my brand. And as a victim's advocate and someone that has worked with so many victims, I just could not do um, what at the time was almost every thriller out there did, which was to put you in the point of view of a victim, usually a child or a woman, as they were being assaulted and tortured and eventually killed. And that was like the opening chapter of like almost every thriller out there um, during that time. Now, remember, this was, you know, over a decade ago. 
And I just could not see that. It, it, it felt like it was it was taking advantage of these victims instead of really addressing their experiences and the cost to real human life that violence takes. And um, I've been unfortunate enough to have violence in my own life. And so I understood that, you know, it really is a grieving process because you lose something when you're a victim of violence. You lose the life that you always dreamed that you were going to have and everything changes. So my first books actually featured an emergency room physician. So someone who's very smart and educated, who was um, the victim of domestic violence. And she found the courage to leave that marriage, but still had to deal with the professional and the personal downfall um, that came from her leaving um, that kind of situation. And where do you find the ability to move past that and be able to trust uh, someone again in an intimate relationship? So those are my Hart and Drake thrillers. And I was not certain how people would accept them because people weren't writing that kind of book when I when those were first published. And I was amazed. I got letters from women who said, thanks to you and your honesty, I could relate to this character. And I found the courage to make a phone call and to start to get help and to start to get, you know, to escape from this abusive relationship. And so that was very fulfilling. And I realized I could reach so many more people than I could as a physician, just meeting patients, one person or one family at a time. I think this is such an important point to bring up because you can look at the work of a physician and see the contribution that they make to other people's lives. But with artists of any kind, the contribution is not so obvious. And maybe it's never as life and death in the case of many artists. But I mean, this is... Now, see, I would disagree with that. I think artists save lives in a different way than a physician that can do the hands-on and can actually collect data and say, oh, I, this technique saved this life, but, you know, I wasn't able to save this one. Um, artists, I mean, look at how many people who saved their lives have been changed by a song they heard uh, during a crisis point. Um, I used to work a suicide hotline and it, and it was always amazing to me the different things that they would talk about that were keeping them. Cause one of the questions we would ask is, okay, why would you not kill yourself? What, I mean, we didn't phrase it that way. We had a very, you know, uh, more, yeah. uh, I don't know what you would call it, uh, approved way to phrase it, but basically we're asking them, you know, what is keeping you here on earth? Why, why, what is making your life feel like you can actually make it through today and go on living for another day? And so many of them would say, you know, well, you know, this song um, has really inspired me or, you know, I, um, I was on the subway and I saw a, you know, uh, advertisement for an art exhibit and I really want to go see that. And so just having one thing to hang on to was enough for many people to start to realize that they could live another day and they could work on their issues and they could get help and they could find the courage to ask for help and accept it and keep going. So I, I would totally, and I think this is where a lot of people think of artists as just, you know, elite or isolated or away from the rest of humanity. 
But I think real artists immerse themselves in humanity. And that's how they make those very, very important connections on an emotional level. Even artists that have been dead for 100 years. I mean, how many people, when you go to a museum, are in tears? I know I always cry when I'm at art museums. And they're in tears. And it's these works of art that, you know, have, you know, the artists died, you know, centuries ago. Well, CJ, I'm absolutely delighted to stand corrected here. What an inspiring riposte to my blundering assertion about the redundancy of art. (laughs) Well, I wouldn't say blundering because, unfortunately, it is a common misconception. So, CJ, you said as a doctor you got to see the best of people and people at their worst. And... That's making me think of something that's been on my mind, you know, the last few days thinking about this interview, because whenever I speak to you, you're always charming and upbeat and so positive and inspiring. And yet you write about the most horrific subjects. How do you stay so upbeat in the face of, you know, the, the really gruesome facts of life? Well, I, I think a lot of that comes from not just observing people at their worst moments, but also living them myself Um, and realizing that there is such a wealth of untapped strength and power and decency that normal people, everyday people that you'll never see like, you know, in a headline in the paper or, you know, caught on a, a YouTube video that just normal everyday people can step up and be heroes. And the thing is, yes, there are terrible, terrible things in my book, but I never show any gratuitous violence. Um, even when there's, there is violence, and I try to be very honest about the implications of the violence and the, the consequences to the people. Um, my books all have happy endings, but the happy ending comes at a cost. It's not going to just be the glossy ride off into the yeah. sunset. There's a price to pay, just like in real life. But I think the thing is, what I'm always focused on isn't the violence. It isn't the crime. It's that gray area between good and evil of people coping with this and healing from it and rising up or falling, making the wrong decision. I have a lot of books where the only difference between the good guy and the bad guy is that they're both trying to do the right thing um, in their minds, which is, you know, often, you know, say, protect their family or save something important to them. But they decide where they diverge is that, you know, one of them decides to sacrifice something and the other decides not to sacrifice. And, you know, often that's the main thing. They're two sides of the same coin. And I love exploring that gray area between good and evil because it's in all of us. It's in all of us the potential to go either way. And I think to show someone consciously deciding to go one way or the other is very powerful. And that's really what fiction is all about. Mm. Um, You know, I did a Earthwatch um, volunteer expedition that was in the outback of Australia. And we were, it's an archaeological expedition mapping the cave art. 
and we carbon dated it back. And so here's this cave art telling a story via paintings. And it carbon dated back to 47,000 BC. So for over 50,000 years, and actually they just recently found some new cave art uh, that they dated back to closer to 100,000 years. Uh, mm. I think it was on the African continent. Yeah, yeah, South Africa. South Africa? I think it was yeah. South Africa. Yeah. Um, so for 100,000 years, we have been using stories to educate and to explain the world and to um, share and connect with other people in our tribe. And I would argue that the six most important words in the English language are, let me tell you a story. <laughs> Everything starts there, whether it's the Bible, whatever religion, you know, your chosen religion uses as a Bible, whether it's educating kids so that they don't touch the fire, uh, whether it's explaining the spooky noises outside the cave. It all starts with, let me tell you a story. And bad things happen to people, and we have to honor that. We can't just brush it aside. But we also don't want to use it as just gratuitous, titillating, almost semi-pornography. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, um, when I started writing thrillers, there was a term that they threw around uh, to describe thrillers. They, they weren't held in the highest regard at the time. Uh, and this, again, was you know a decade ago. They were called, um, what were they called? They were called torture porn. Mm. Uh, and I just despised that because I was like, when terrible things happen, that's often when humanity rises up and shines. And I wanted to show that, but in a very honest way, not in an overblown Superman, superhero type of way. And I, I think that's honestly why I still have a career uh, is that that kind of emotional impact I try to include in every single one of my books. And I think that's what, uh, now my audience is very narrow. There's not a lot of people that like having that emotional honesty enmeshed in their thriller escapism. Cause you know, let's face it, you know, like Lee Child's Jack Reacher, basically a Paladine character, but you know, it, people want to dream about being the Lone Ranger, but they don't want to necessarily dream about, you know, what kind of pain that might cost. Yeah. They, they want the fantasy. And, and that's fine. That's what entertainment is. But for me, you know, my particular audience for my form of entertainment that I promised them with my thrillers with heart uh, is that, you know what, you are going to get some pain and suffering before you come out the other end. But you're going to also get that uplifting, courageous, you know, everyday people becoming heroes that hopefully, you know, pays off the pain and suffering of the crime. And, you know, I, I always make that promise that you're not you're going to get the thriller part, but you're also going to get that emotional heart. Uh, so I think my main job is mainly to be able to take characters like that and put them in a story uh, using words. But an artist or a photographer or cinematographer, you know, they use different kind of media to create that same sense of storytelling, of connection with their audience. Okay. And you gave a wonderful example. I mean, I can't imagine how it must feel to get messages like that from people who've read your books. But at the point where you decided to quit your job as a doctor and 
go for the writing full time? I mean, you, you hadn't had that level of feedback yet, or, or am I wrong about that? No, you're right. I had the first two in the Hart and Drake uh, series were under contract, but they had yet to be published. Right. And in fact, I don't know how much you want me to go into detail, but my story takes uh, an interesting twist <laughs> before okay. uh, I actually had my first book published. Um, I had already quit my job as a physician. I had moved uh, a thousand miles away from home because here in the United States, at least, uh, the idea of a writer getting a mortgage is uh, fraught with a bit of peril, shall I say? So uh, <laughs> I figured, well, if I if the writing takes off, where do I want to live? And basically, I didn't want to shovel snow anymore in Pennsylvania, so I moved yeah. near the beach. Uh-huh. And so here I was, a thousand miles away from home and family, left everything behind, made a clean break. But my first book is coming out, and then it wasn't. It was canceled by the publisher because of cover art, something I had no control over, no input on. Uh, I had been telling them for months that the cover art didn't work. Uh, and it wasn't until the vendors, Barnes Noble, Borders, Books a Million, the uh, Walmart, saw the actual cover art, which wasn't revealed to them until right before uh, the book was due to be released. And they canceled their pre-orders. And their pre-orders were significant for a debut author because they had an advanced reader's copy of the actual book. And so they fell in love with the books. But the cover art, they just couldn't abide. And they told my publisher, change his cover or, you know, we're going to pull our orders. And my publisher said, well, we have an award-winning art department. We stand by them. And, of course, the lowly debut novelist that has absolutely no power in the traditional <sighs> publishing system gets caught in the middle. So my career should have ended before it started because, you know, those first two contracts were canceled. My book was dead. Forget about it. So you'd quit your job, you'd, you'd committed, and then the publisher bungled. Basically, yeah, that's my point of view. They, I'm sure they would have a different alternative story. <laughs> or, or but... let's say Barnes & Noble and the publisher between them, right? But, well, no, I mean... no, I have to admit, the bookstores were right. This cover yeah. for a debut hardcover thriller novelist was designed to literally make people nauseous and seasick when they looked at it. It was shades of bile green that shimmered like silvery. And oh. the, the, there was a little picture on the cover, but it was free stock art from Microsoft. So it was very common. And they washed all the color out of it and turned it also into shades of bile green. So even when you were like reading the title or the wonderful cover quotes I had from people like Sandra Brown and Lisa Gardner and Tess Gerritsen, you know, uh, you you literally got seasick um, trying to read the cover. So who would spend a hard cover? You know, at the time it was like twenty five ninety nine US for a hard cover. Who would spend that on an author they never heard of to literally take home a book that was going to make them seasick every time they looked at the cover art? I mean, so they had a point. I have to admit. Yeah, it would, it, I must admit, it would give me pause for thought. And, you know, I want to highlight this as well, because it's easy for people to look at the success that you've had and say, well, it's all right for CJ and, and, and people at that level. But 
going through an experience like this is part of the price of success, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I started out, I mean, I had a nice uh, debut deal um, and a second contract already under my belt, but then suddenly I had nothing. So in a way, I was worse off than many people because, you know, I had put all my efforts and energies into this one series, the Hart and Drake series, that suddenly appeared as if, you know, that was all wasted, that it was not going to go anywhere. It had already been reviewed and the advanced readers copies had circulated. So there was no way another publisher would pick it up. So uh, what to do? You know, I mean, here I was, I, I suddenly had no job, no income other than my savings. You know, what, what to do? Well, what did you do? I wrote. That's <laughs> what I always do. I told you, it's my way of, of dealing with chaos and understanding it. And um, here's the funny thing that uh, shows you that karma is a bitch. The book I wrote during that time um, until um, uh, it was actually uh, editor or publisher at Penguin called me up and asked me to create uh, a medical thriller series specifically for Penguin. And that became my actual first traditionally published books, the Angel of Mercy series. But before that happened, the book that I, I worked on and that I just poured everything into in response to, you know, basically having the rug pulled out from under me on my debut uh, books uh, was um, Flying Faith. And that book, when it was eventually published, um, it went on to... Uh, debut at number two on the New York Times bestselling list. Uh, it stayed on the New York Times list for six or seven weeks. Um, I can't quite remember. And um, uh, won the Thriller Award, won an uh, RT Reviewer's Choice Award. Uh, it went on to just do really wonderful things, uh, despite the fact that it was self-published. So it was kind of like me having put such heart and soul into that into that project after coming off the devastation of you know my traditional publisher saying oh we're just going to cancel your career you're you're worth nothing to us we're not even going to fight for your books uh to just within a couple years achieving that just felt so validating uh i just really it's hard to find the words and it was all due to my readers. I mean, I really, I mean, yeah, I, I wrote the best book I could, but it was my readers uh, passing it on and, and giving me word of mouth and just getting behind that, that title that really did it. So at what point did you start considering self-publishing? I mean, you'd landed the deal. You, you, you knew you could play in that arena. And at this time, self-publishing was very much still a new thing, right? Oh, yes. This was um, before... Uh, Kindle even had the KDP platform out. But what happened was my first book from um, Penguin came out in 2008, and that's the Angels of Mercy medical suspense series. But despite the fact that I already had the books written, they asked for four books in that series. Um, what happened was they decided to only put out one book a year. And after that first book came out, which it was a national bestseller and it won several awards, readers found it and they want it more and they want it more now. 
And so I was like, well, how can I keep my readers happy? Which turned out that was the best question for me to ask because that became Mm. the foundation of everything I have done as a publishing um, professional is what will make my readers just jump for joy and dance with delight and want to tell all their friends about my work. And that's very different from how many people approach the business. But for me, that was the perfect question to be asking. So I realized, well, I, I, um, that there was this new KDP platform and I read several people and bloggers that were using it and that there was a a lack of Kindle books and people were embracing uh, the idea of reading um, outside of print books. So I went to my publisher and I'll never forget this meeting. There's a publisher, my editor, my agent, myself. And we were talking about prepping for the second book in the series. And I said, look, um, I have these books that were good enough for New York City. They got good reviews, but the, the contract was canceled, but they've already been copy edited. They were ready to go to print. Um, I could self-publish them and use that as a, as a marketing platform with your help. And they were like, well, no, we're not interested in that. And I said, oh, well, what about if I wrote a, a, just a short story for you? And you could publish it through Kindle, because even at that time, you could get much better placement going via a traditional publisher than self-publishing on the KDP platform, on the Kindle platform. Plus, you know, they could host it on their website or use it for giveaways Uh or what have you. And they said you could publish it for free and have links to the pre-order on the second book. And they were like, no. We are in the business of selling books, not giving them away. So when I realized that they just had no interest at all in dealing with Kindle, I took advantage of that. And I said, look, this is what's going to serve my readers and make them remember my name because they have to wait for a whole year from the next book from Penguin. So what I did was I started self-publishing. And again, it was mainly as a, a way, you know, to entertain my readers. And um, it was much more about uh, uh, reaching them than making profit. I mean, at the time, and this is like uh, December, January, so end of 2009, early 2010. So very early in the lifespan of the, the Kindle direct publishing. Uh, at the time, I wasn't even thinking about making money. But I did already have a newsletter going. So I reached out to them and on my blog and I, I just told them, I said, um, you know, I'm doing this. Uh, it happened to be coincidentally at the same time as the Haiti earthquake. And I said, all of the proceeds from the books we sell for the next month are going to go to Doctors Without Borders. And at the time, I only had like two titles up and we sold over 2000 copies and that money went to doctors without borders. And I was like, well, wait, I could sell 2000 copies just with two titles up and just sending out one newsletter. And I realized there was tremendous potential there that was untapped. So that's when I took my older manuscripts that again, were professionally copy edited. Um, I have to admit the original covers 
because I had no idea how to reach out to a, a cover designer. Uh, so they were kind of done um, by myself using stock art. And then I was able to find uh, professional cover artists within a year. So those original covers, you're, you're really not going to be able to find them anywhere, thank goodness. But they were still better than the cover art by the professional New York City house that was designed to make you seasick. So, hey, it was a step in the right direction. But, yeah. um, but that's when I started self-publishing. And within a year, so by early 2011, so only a year of doing it, I was paying the bills with the self-published books. And within 18 months, I was earning as much in a month self-publishing as I did in a year from my New York City contracts. So it was very, very dramatically evident to me that this was a resource, a way to reach readers, which again, that was my primary goal. It wasn't about the money. It was about, can I reach readers and grow my audience and connect with them uh, and give them what they want, which at the time was, you know, good books, but put out faster and at a, you know, uh, a more, more of a value pricing than what New York City was giving them. Because at the time, New York City was pricing their eBooks very expensively compared to um, trade paperback and mass markets. Because they, they saw it as a niche audience, I think, early on. Yeah. And so I could give my readers more value and make them happy. And so it's a win-win, right? And I mean, you could have just sat back and, and waited a year for Penguin to put the next book out, couldn't you? But I love the way you stepped forward and, and you took charge of the situation yourself. And it's it's not just about the publishing platform, is it? Because setting up that newsletter and contacting your readers directly, what difference did that make for you as a writer in terms of your sense of how you moved your career forward? Honestly, that was everything. The, the newsletter, I was a very early adopter of having a mailing list. Um, permission-based marketing is how Seth Godin uh, calls it. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I did after I lost that debut, those two debut contracts um, and was abandoned by my publisher is I realized I couldn't trust anyone else to manage my business. Not my agent who left me high and dry. He just didn't even want to get involved with it. Of course not. He had other writers that were published by that same publishing house. How could he? have defended my best interests when he had other people that, you know, so his interests were divided. My editor obviously wasn't going to champion me if she had to fight with the art department. And the publisher obviously wasn't going to put, you know, my, you know, career above their award-winning art department. So I realized very early on by, um, we, we call it in the writing industry, um, at least in fiction, I don't know if they call it this in, in different genres, but in, in fiction, we call it being orphaned, uh, which is usually when a key member of your publishing team just, you know, leaves yeah. or moves on to a different position. And you're like just the, you know, lost in the void. Well, being orphaned at that early, early stage of my career forced me to realize I need to learn the business. I knew nothing about business. I was a doctor. I, 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 didn't, I don't even balance my checkbook. You know, I, it's like I needed to learn the business. And that's when I actually found you in lateral action. And I took your, at the time it was titled the Creative Pathfinder course, which was brilliant. Right. I highly recommend it. 
so folks, that's the what's now called the 21st Century Creative Foundation course. Um, originally was called the Creative Pathfinder, so I, I'm very glad that I put that out and met CJ through it. Yep, and, and then because of some of the resources that you recommended, I found um, Seth Godin. I still follow his blog religiously. I found um, Copy Blogger, and I did one of their courses. And then mm-hmm. I took a course um, by Brendan Bouchard, who it, he's much more tailored towards nonfiction and product marketing, mm-hmm. but he is just so energetic and his information, I was very easily able to translate into fiction and what I needed to do, which was by focusing on connecting with my audience and taking control of my audience, instead of letting the publisher tell me who my audience was, I told them who my audience was. And in fact, in future book contracts, we would have meetings and I would pull out my demographics and I'd say, listen, my readers are 65% female. Um, They skew over the age of uh, 34. Um, most of them have gone to college and uh, over half of them have gone to grad school. This is how much they make a year. I could give them all the demographics. And I was in a meeting like that. And one of the publishers, this is a major New York city house, looked at my information and he turned to me and he said, where did you get this? Who did you have to pay to get this? (laughs) And I was like, it's free. It's called Quatcast. How come you don't have the numbers to give to me? (laughs) You know, it's like, why do I have to tell you this information? This is your job. You should be telling me. But they, they just don't know that. To them, their audience are the buyers from the major bookstores. And my audience is the individual reader. I mean, I care about every single person that picks up one of my books. And I love hearing from them and connecting with them. And so I nurture that. And big conglomerates aren't used to nurturing anything. So there's two really important things I want to highlight here. Number one is week in, week out, I hear creatives saying, well, you know, I I just want to find someone to take over the business side of things for me so I can get on with doing the creative stuff. And when you listen to a story like this, you know, it's scary how badly your career could have gone down the tube. If I let the professionals... the grown-ups and the professionals (laughs) handle it. Because folks, A, they don't necessarily know better than you, and B, it may be that not be that they have bad intentions, but they have other priorities. Yes. And, and I think that's important to understand. I mean, I still uh, partner with New York City Publishing. In fact, my next book coming out in November is from HarperCollins, and it's a young adult thriller called um, The Color of Lies here in the U.S. Um, and um, I partner with them because it, to build a platform and to find a young adult audience from where I sit now today is so much more time consuming and takes a lot of talent in arenas that I am not talented. So it would not play to my strengths. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I let them do that heavy lifting. Now I'm take a significant pay cut because they take 90% of the, you know, the profits and my advance is, is smaller than it you know, I would make I make less on a young adult book than I would if I self-publish an adult thriller. But I love writing these books and I want them to reach an audience. So if I have to give up something 
you know, that's a creative choice to me more than a business choice. Uh, if it allows me to reach an audience with these books that I love writing, then I'm happy to do it. Uh, if you're looking at it strictly from a business choice and you're looking at the spreadsheet, that may not make sense. So you have to decide what kind of creative professional you are and where your strengths lie. And, you know, do you need the money right now today to feed your family? Well, then you're going to go down a different path than someone that is, you know, they have adequate funding and they can take their time and kind of nurture that audience and they understand that they want something different. Um, that's one of the wonders about being an author today. Um, also, other creative artists, I have a friend that's a professional photographer and the internet has changed how she can reach people around the world with her artwork instead of just the people that would walk into her art gallery. So I, I think you have to decide what kind of creative professional you are and where your strengths lie. And for me, my strengths lie in the storytelling and connecting with my audience. So that's where I still do my mailing list and my, my newsletters. Now, I am not good at social media, though. That kind of instantaneous 24-7 uh, connection, I just can't sustain. I am a hermit at heart. And so, no, I'm, I'm not good at Facebook or Instagram. I keep those very professional. They're pretty much, you know, all focused on the books or topics that the books deal with. Uh, you're not going to find anything about my personal life on there. Um, but there's other people that are more extroverted that they love that. That's like to them, the ultimate connection with their audience. So you have to weigh these decisions based on how much of your time and energy they're going to cost almost as much as, well, actually in my case, more than how much money are they going to cost? So I, I, I think it's a very interesting um, idea that's different from traditional business philosophies. So you really, the whole idea of being a creative entrepreneur, it's so different than just learning marketing or just learning budgeting yeah. or just learning yeah. how to hire people. You can make money and actually there are some very well-known writers out there that have made tremendous fortunes where they will admit they don't even write their own books. They were marketing professionals and they know how to reach an audience. And so they hire other people to write the books for them because to them, that's the least important part of their business. Now, for me, the stories come first and, my, and I have to write stories that will delight my audience and, and, and allow them to enter my world and experience that emotional journey with a, a, an honesty that they can connect to. So I come at it from a totally different direction, but that doesn't mean that any one of us is right or wrong. You have to figure out what's right for you. I think this is so important and very wise that you need to know yourself, what you're good at, what you love doing the most, and you need to know who you're trying to reach. Well, that's actually the three secrets that I, whenever I teach, that's what I always tell people. There's three secrets to success. Mm -hmm. Know yourself, know your story, know your audience. Right. And if you can nail those three, you can create your own path. Now, everyone has to measure success because they know themselves and they know what they need and they know their strengths and they know their weaknesses. 
there's no, you know, I, I just cringe sometimes when I see some of these online courses that are guaranteed to, you know, make you a bestseller or blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, they're great for some people, but there's no one answer for everyone. And I think it's important because um, this isn't, you know, like the business of making nuts and bolts or, you know, a gadget yeah. where there's one way to make the gadget and that, you know, you put that on the assembly line and that's it. Um, when you're talking to creatives, no, there's no one way of creating, but there's also no one way of being a creative entrepreneur running your business. But, you know, and a lot of this is trial and error. And that is one thing that I think separates a lot of creatives from people that may want to be a creative, whether it's they want to like write their memoir or write a story, but they're maybe not going to be able to pursue it as a full-time career. And that is creatives. We aren't afraid to fail. We see each failure as a learning experience that will help us to be better and to, and to raise the bar on our next endeavor. Um, and show us where we need to improve. Um, I'm a lifelong learner, um, as you know, because we've talked about this before. So I am constantly taking classes on all sorts of bizarre topics. Like right now, I'm, I'm taking an online class on the history of the Irish language. Now, I don't sell wow. my books in Ireland. <laughs> I know nothing, but I love the poetry of the language, you know, and I'm taking another class on um, cryptology and um, code breaking, uh, which may or may not go into any of my books, but it's just fascinating. Uh, so, uh, and I'm taking another class on cooking. <laughs> so, I, you know, it's like when you approach life in that idea of, you know, I want to get these experiences and part of having a life experience is letting yourself fail. I mean, like I said, my career as a writer should have failed. I mean, I was technically a failure. I was I had no income from my chosen profession of writing. And I had left behind a very good profession. The income wasn't great because I was a pediatrician and we aren't paid much here in the United States. But, you know, money aside, it was a very fulfilling profession that I loved. And I in my first step, uh, you know, not by choice was to be a failure. Well, you have to learn from that. And that's why I love it that, you know, the book I wrote during that time of, of basically grieving my career as a writer was the book that, you know, you know, has sold over a quarter of a million copies and has, you know, gotten such critical acclaim. Because to me, that was so validating that, you know, no failure has to be a failure. It's a step. It's a step in a process. Okay, at this point, CJ, you've sold goodness knows how many books, and you've won lots of awards, you've hit the bestseller lists over and over again. So in terms of external markers, it, it doesn't look like there's a lot left for you to achieve. How does that affect your motivation? Or does it affect your motivation these days? And, and you know, what is important to you these days about your work? Okay, I love that you ask this, because this goes back to the fact that there are so many paths and you really have to know yourself as an artist or as a creative and what is your definition of success. For me, if you looked at my sales numbers over the last 18 months, um, 
you would say, oh, she's a nobody. She's a has-been. She's not selling that great. And you would be right if you only looked at the sales numbers. And a part of that is because right now, so many people are entering the self-publishing arena and many of them excel at marketing. And so they know how to inundate you know, the audience with their product and get that visibility. And that's something that, quite frankly, I have never been able to master. Like I said, my thrillers apart are, are designed to reach only a small niche audience. They're not designed for everyone that's out there on Kindle buying a book. And um, I'm still able to keep my niche audience very happy, but I'm not, I have not been able over especially around the last 18 months since Kindle Unlimited. Well, I guess it was more like about two years since Kindle Unlimited came out and just created this tsunami of content that makes it very difficult to get any visibility, any traction on the Amazon algorithms. Um, So I can still reach my readers, that core niche, but it's been very difficult to grow past that. And if this was early in my career, I would find that extremely frustrating. And I would be spending time and energy and learning uh, alternative ways of perhaps marketing or of uh, maybe writing faster, maybe providing more content would have been the answer I would have chosen. But I'm lucky enough that because I came in early when Amazon had less than a million books in its catalog, and I was able to get that visibility and reach more customers because of that, more readers, uh, that I, I have that kind of opportunity to sit back and relax and just focus on my work. Uh, I'm constantly taking classes and trying to learn how to increase my impact through my writing, through the actual words on the page, instead of learning how to handle the spreadsheet and data managing of Facebook ads, for example, or AMS ads, that's just beyond me. And so I've decided, and it's a personal decision and everyone has to, you know, make the decision that fits with their definition of success. I've decided for me, the best way for career sustainability is actually to step back. Um, I've turned down most speaking engagements. Um, so I said yes to you because we've known each other for so long, but you know, most podcast interviews and teaching opportunities, I've, I've started saying no to, um, my blog that I had for writers, uh, was called no rules, just write W R I T E. But I closed that down after hackers took it down. And I realized that was a blessing in disguise because it was becoming so hard to find the time to give it the energy that it deserved. So now I direct everyone to places like thecreativepen.com or Lateral Action. And that's great because I can just refer them to people that are doing it the same thing, but marvelously. So I've decided myself as my personal decision to concentrate on my craft. How can I keep raising the bar on my books? And part of that might mean publishing less often and not making as much money. And that's okay. Uh, I'm, at, I'm at a point where the money sustains what I need it to sustain. But that may not be a viable option for someone early in their career. 
So you, you do have to take all of those pros and cons and understand the different paths to success and see where you measure success. So CJ, this is now the point of the show where I invite my guest to set the listener a creative challenge. So something to do with the theme of today's interview and your work uh, that our listener can go and do herself or himself. Okay. So I alluded to the fact early on that I chose for my business pathway or guidelines that um, every decision had to be focused on my audience and what would excite and delight them and make them jump for joy and tell their friends about my work. So that's going to be my challenge to you guys. I want you to go out there and I want you to think of one thing, just one thing that you can do that would give such added value to your audience and excite them that they want to share your work with all of their friends. So it might be, if you're a visual artist, it might be creating, you know, one specific piece of work that you could offer as a free download for a desktop or, you know, a free print that they could get uh, and take home and frame. Uh, For a writer, it might be creating something uh, targeted to your audience that is something that you can give them. You can just gift it to them. There's so much, I, I just can't even emphasize the amount of uplifting creativity that springs when you give something away to your audience and you start getting the feedback from them that how much they appreciate it. It just creates this bond that cements you to them on an emotional level that no amount of advertising or marketing money can buy. So that's my challenge to you. Find one thing that you can give your audience and just give it with an open heart and open hands and just be as generous as possible and invite them to share it. And I want you to be open to that and see what kind of feedback you get. Beautiful. Thank you. So... CJ, last question. Where can people find you online? And also, you've written so many books. Where would you recommend people start? And, you know, maybe there's different places for people with different tastes. Okay. Um, my website is cjlyons.net. So that's C-J-L-Y-O-N-S.net. And a good place to start is I do the same thing I just challenge you guys. I give away the first book in my most successful, most popular, critically acclaimed best-selling series, the Lucy Gardino Thriller series. The title's called Snakeskin, and you can um, sign up for my mailing list and download it for free right from the website. So that's a great place to start in um, my books. And if that doesn't quite um, seem like a you know, the kind of book that you're up for. Uh, If you go to my books page, you'll see a listing of all my books with more information on them and where to get them. But most people just start with uh, Snakeskin and the free download and go from there. Great. So, CJ, thank you so much. I, for one, am very glad and grateful that you did say yes when I invited you onto the show. And I'm sure my listeners will... (laughs) say no to you are you kidding me <laughs> I'm, I'm sure my listeners will be just as grateful I mean you've you've really shared a lot about your art and your journey and some really powerful insights about the attitude we can take to business 
and we can be maybe a little more creative and successful in that sphere than, than we think we can be. So thank you so much, CJ. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. You have been listening to The 21st Century Creative, hosted by me, Mark McGuinness. You can find the notes for today's show with more information about my guest and links to the sites we mentioned, as well as all the archived episodes at 21stCenturyCreative.fm. If you enjoyed the show, then I hope you'll subscribe in iTunes, and I'm always grateful for your reviews, and also for sharing the show with your friends and followers. If you'd like to have the 21st Century Creative Foundation course delivered to you for free, giving you 26 lessons of advice and worksheets on carving out an original creative career, you can sign up at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. And if you are an experienced creative interested in getting my help as a private coaching client, you can learn about how I help my clients at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash coaching. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again soon.